Wildwood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. In this series, uh, Don't Forget the Fish, we, we've used as an image to help us remember the truth of 2 Corinthians. We've used as the image that of a fishing trip. And you know, if you were to go on a fishing trip, if all of us were to leave here this morning to go on a fishing trip, we would all gather up a bunch of gear uh, to go on that trip with. You know, you, there would be things that you would need in order to fish. You would gather up your, 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 your rods and your reels, and you gather up your tackle bag, and you gather up some, uh, uh, some, some equipment. You know, as we've been going through this every week, uh, Michael Bendrick actually gave me two of these this week and said, these are the best lures out there. So, Michael, if you, if you were looking for a good lure, Michael's got the, the lure for you. But you would gather up some of this gear to take with you when you would go out on the fishing trip. And, and what we said the first week and what we've repeated in each additional week is, how absurd would it be to gather up all of this gear for a fishing trip and then instead of actually using it to fish, spending all of your time just organizing it? You go to the, to the lake's edge and you spend all your time just organizing your, your tackle sack and, and organizing your lures and organizing your gear. That would be absurd to do that, right? And we've made the parallel that in the Christian life, God has equipped us with a lot of gear. God has equipped us with gear like His Word, His Spirit, spiritual gifts, community. God has gifted us with a church where we can gather together. God has gifted us with a lot of gear in the Christian life. And Jesus said that it's his intention that we would use that gear to fish for men. That we'd use that gear to be engaged in ministry to others. And how absurd would it be as a Christian to spend all of our time merely organizing our stuff and never using it for the purpose that God gave it to us for? And what we've been looking at is, is how do we not forget the fish? What are the truths of 2 Corinthians 2-5 through 5 that would encourage us to continue to live a lifestyle of engaging in ministry with others? Um, we're going to see the third part of that today. The third part of our series we're going to look at today as, as we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the first six verses. Uh, but before we get there, let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for this time, and I thank you for the opportunity that you have given us to gather in this place and to, to worship you. Father, I pray that you would speak through me today. Father, as, as we, we pray often, we don't need to hear from me today. We need to hear from you. And so, Father, I pray that you would speak through me. And Father, that anything that I say today that are your words and your truth, I pray that we would remember them. Uh, but Father, anything that I say that's just my own opinion, I pray that we would just quickly forget that. Father, that we would leave today with a clear picture of who you are, and that we might trust you in a deeper, more intense way with our lives. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's hard to be the older sibling. It's hard to be the older brother or sister. At least this is what I understand to be true. I, I myself am the younger of my parents' two kids. But in conversations with my sister and in conversations with others, it's more difficult to be the first child. I think there's several reasons why it's more difficult to be the first child. Uh, one of them is that for the first child, you know, parenting is, you're kind of a parent's dress rehearsal. 
right? And, and, and every additional kid gets to experience the benefit of that practice. Uh, if you're a firstborn in here today, know that your parents are trying stuff on you, right? Uh, they've never been to the waters that you're entering into, uh, and they're trying to, to figure it out. Uh, but the reality is it's, it's more difficult to be the first child be, because of that. Uh, but I think another reason why it's more difficult to be the first child is if you're in a family with, with lots of kids, then everything kind of gets skewed slightly younger and maybe catered to the younger person in your family. I know that was the case in my family growing up. Uh, my sister had to endure having all the games and, and things suited for her younger brother who was four and a half years younger than her. Uh, one of those games that we liked to play was the game Operation. You ever play that game? Uh, as you're a kid, it's a little, a little guy, you know, you see the picture up there and, and uh, he's, you try to remove different parts of his body and, and uh, if you touch the sides, a uh, buzzer goes off and his nose writes up red. Uh, that's a fun game unless you take the batteries out. And uh, um, as the younger child, I somehow had battery veto power in my family. And uh, because I was terrified of the game with the batteries in it, my sister and I would play this game with no batteries. Well, with no batteries, it's fairly easy to win, right? Uh, who knows if you're touching the side? And, and you know, I, I, could, I could just trump her in this. Uh, but, you know, when you, you play a lot of games, I don't know if you grew up like I did, but we played a lot of games when uh, we were younger. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about the games that we played when, when, when we were younger. And I was thinking about some of the life lessons that uh, I learned playing those games with my sister and with our friends. There's some life lessons that we learned. And, and as I thought about those life lessons that we learned playing these games, and I thought about the passage of Scripture we're looking at today, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I realized that there's some parallel between some of the lessons that we learn about life from playing board games as a kid and some of the lessons that Paul wants us to remember about ministering to others, about fishing for, for men. And, and so we're going to look at what some of those lessons are today, and we're going to see three lessons, and we're going to see them from the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the first six verses. If you've got a Bible, open up to 2 Corinthians 4, the first six verses. We're going to take a look today at these six verses, and we're going to see three things in these verses. Three life lessons for ministry from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to read them to it first, and then we'll, we'll back in and, and, and look at it a little more in depth. It says, Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. In these six verses, we're going to see three lessons for ministry. Uh, the first lesson that we're going to see is this. Don't quit. Don't quit. When you think about investing your life in ministering or serving others, in the name of Christ, 
The first lesson we need to remember is, don't quit. Uh, We see that in chapter 4 and verse 1. See, in this verse, Paul begins by saying, therefore. Anytime you see a therefore in the Scripture, it's drawing a conclusion. It's drawing an inference based on what was just shared. And what Paul had just been saying was he had been saying that the truth that we have looked at over the last few weeks, that that we are being led in a triumphal procession in Christ, that as we are being led through our lives, our lives are like a parade route where everywhere around us, the fragrance of the knowledge of God is spread. Since that is true, and since, as we saw last week, none of us are worthy for that kind of a ministry in and of ourselves. It's something that God has to qualify us for. Since that is true, since we're being led in triumph, and since God has qualified us for that ministry, and since, and there's a, this is a section at the end of chapter 3 that we're, we haven't looked at in depth, but which describes how the message that we're sharing is the greatest message that can be shared from one person to another. Since all of those things are true, since we have the best message that's being spread everywhere through our lives and God has made us competent for that ministry, since all of those things are true, Paul says, therefore, therefore, through God's mercy, we have this ministry so we do not lose heart. That phrase that the NIV translates, we do not lose heart, literally means don't quit. Therefore, since God has done all of this and has given us this awesome ministry, we shouldn't quit. Since God has given us this awesome ministry that He has qualified us for in His grace and in His mercy, we shouldn't quit. And the question we ought to be asking ourselves is, if the ministry is that great, if the ministry is a triumphal procession, if the ministry is something that God has qualified Him for, if the ministry is, is the best message that could possibly be shared, why would Paul ever want to quit that? I mean, as, as, as I shared it right now, it might feel like a stacked deck. I mean, it'd be like asking a four-year-old, are you ready to leave Disney World? No, of course not. Why would Paul need to say, don't quit when it comes to ministering and serving others? The reason why Paul says don't quit is that ministry, while it is all of the things that I just shared, It also is tough. It's difficult. It's costly. Paul, in in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, beginning in the second half of verse 23, describes his ministry this way. He says, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not burn inwardly? 
if you had just lived that testimony, you think there'd be a temptation to quit what you're doing? Yeah, ministry can be tough. For Paul, it was tough to the extreme degree, right? The things that Paul experienced that he described in 2 Corinthians 11 there uh, were some of the most intense things that a person could go through in the ancient world. And Paul lived through all of them. Not only that, we saw the first week of our study that Paul was at, at odds with the church in Corinth. He was having a difficult time communicating with them, and he wondered if they were just rejecting him entirely at this point in their relationship. Because of all of that, Paul might have been tempted to quit. To just say, you know, enough. I'm wiping my hands of this. I'm going to go back to building tents. It's a much safer occupation. I'm going to go back to spending my volunteer time helping kids out fish in the local fishing derby. It's just easier to do that. But in light of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.1, he says, even though all of that's true, based on what else I know about ministry, I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to quit. And he says he's not going to quit because he knows that this ministry is the ministry that Christ had given him. Look at what it says there. He says, through God's mercy, we have this ministry. We know that through God's mercy, we have this ministry. Paul had a sense of calling in his life. He had a sense of understanding that out of all the people in all the world, God had a special purpose for him to do something. And that something involved a ministry among the Corinthians. And because Paul knew that God had that special calling on his life, regardless of how difficult it would become, Paul said, because God has given us this ministry, I'm not going to quit. You know, when it comes to the places where you serve, have you ever wanted to quit? When it comes to the ministries that you serve in, have you ever wanted to quit? Have you ever... Have you ever left church on a Sunday excited about going and sharing the truth about Christ with a neighbor. And you go home and they give you one of those looks. And you think, I just want to quit. I don't want to engage in that. Because who knows where it might go. It might be painful to me. Have you ever served in children's ministry a while? Well, we talked about this a few weeks ago. But it just gets so difficult at times with your class that you think, I just want to quit. I don't want to do that anymore. Involved in leadership in any way or capacity, involved in serving in any way or capacity, you experience those difficulties. Have you ever said, I want to quit? Have you ever, in, in your mind, written and composed your, your resignation letter from your, from your time of service? Now, we usually compose those letters in the car on the way home from whatever we want to quit. These are the reasons why I'm never doing that again. You ever have those moments in your life? I, I know that I do. There's times in ministry, um, even as a pastor, where I, I think, you know what, enough. What I'm doing isn't making a difference. I'm, I'm, I'm serving in the wrong fit. I, I'm the wrong person or whatever it might be. And, you, you know, we convince ourselves of those things in the moments of difficulty, and we compose these little resignation letters in our mind on the way home. If you're like me, then you've done that before. So if, if that's the case with you, how do you... Get to the point where you say, you know what, I'm not going to quit. I'm going to persevere. We get there, Paul says, by remembering 
by remembering what it is that God has given us. By remembering that, that what we're doing is sharing the best message that can possibly be shared. And what we're doing is spreading everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. And what we're doing is something that He has fully qualified us for in His grace and in His mercy. Because of that, and because out of all of the people in the universe, God has entrusted one part of serving in His kingdom to you. Because that's true, we don't have to quit. We can persevere and go on and wait for the good times, even in the midst of the bad times. Because there's a ministry that God has for you. I don't know if, if you uh, have a place in your life that you feel like, you know, this is the calling that God has for me. This is the ministry that God has called me to. It's serving in this capacity or that capacity. Some of you have that. Others of you are still searching. Some of you are sitting out there right now just like Luke was last year. And ministry opportunities come up and you think, that's a great deal for somebody. The reality, though, is that God has a place for everyone. And sometimes we have to try some things just to find out where the fit is for us in ministry. And when you get to that spot, when you get to that place that is God's place for you in ministry, realize that it is something that He has entrusted you to you. He has given it to you. And when you're in the midst of those difficult times, know that He has qualified you for that moment. Know that He has set you aside for that moment. And be encouraged in that and not quit. The lesson we learn when we play board games as a kid, don't quit when things look tough. Finish the game. And it's something Paul wanted us to remember in ministry. Not quit. The first lesson we see there. The second lesson, though, that I think Paul wanted us to see uh, is this. Don't cheat. Don't cheat. We see this in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2. Paul says it this way. It says, rather we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. You know what? What Paul is saying there is that in ministry, it is possible to get in the game of trying to manage outcomes, to try to close the sale, to get the response that you want. And in the process of doing that, to maybe dilute or water down or, or not tell the whole truth in order to get that result, to kind of cheat the truth a little bit in order to have people respond the way that we want them to respond. And in, 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 in our situation, it might be you're ministering to a friend and you know that the difficult issue for them to grasp is the fact that Christ says that he is the only way that someone can have a relationship with God. And we think, you know what? I really don't want us to talk about that. Even if it comes up, I'm going to steer away from that because I just want them to say yes to Jesus and then maybe someday they'll, they'll, they'll forget that that was a part of the package. Sometimes we have a temptation to want to dilute things down in order to get the response that we want. That was a temptation that was facing Paul. It was a temptation that was facing people that were ministering in that day. There were others who were going around and diluting down the Word of God to get the response that they wanted. And Paul says, in no way am I cheating in the way that I am communicating truth. In no way am I cheating. As a matter of fact, very plainly before you, I am declaring the Word of God. I'm stating the Word of God plainly, is what he said. Committing ourselves to every man's conscience 
in the sight of God. In other words, what you saw with Paul was what you, was what you got. He was the real deal. The message that he shared had no backdoor catch. You ever, you ever see an event and it's offered for free and you wonder, what's the catch? Uh, re- recently, there was the big program at uh, Lloyd Noble and up at the city. For five bucks, you could see America's 10 greatest speakers or whatever. And I remember seeing that advertised for $5 and I thought, what's the catch? What's the catch on that program? Uh, certainly, it's a bait and switch. They're going to get me there, then they're going to try to sell me a timeshare in Boca or whatever it is, you know. Um, certainly, there must be a catch as a part of that because that's, that's what we're trained to do. And Paul said, in no way was his ministry a bait and switch. In no way was his ministry not what it was advertised. Very plainly before people, he spoke the word of God. You know, that is the explanation for why Paul had some difficulty in his life in ministry. Because Paul spoke the truth plainly, not everyone accepted it. And he ended up into some spots and into some difficulty. He was beaten and stoned and flogged and imprisoned because he was professing the truth plainly among these people. He wasn't diluting it down just to get a desired response. He wasn't a salesman. He wasn't cheating the gospel. You know what? In our lives, we need to be mindful of this. We need to be mindful that we are not that we never dilute down the Word of God in order to get the response that we want. That we never deceive people in order to get them to say yes to Jesus. Now, this has lots and lots of applications. Um, I think about situations as parents. This is important for us to remember as parents. Sometimes we, we think, you know what, um, getting kids to believe in Christ, maybe that's like you know, feeding your dog medicine. If you just wrap it in enough cheese, they'll swallow the whole thing, and later on the, the positive impact of religion will come out, but they haven't really bought the whole thing. You know, as parents, sometimes we want to dilute down the truth so much to our kids or to, to coerce the situation to cheat the situation a little bit to get the desired response that we want. The reality is that we ought to be able to state the truth plainly as it is and allow it to go forth in their lives, allow them to accept or to reject it, but to state the truth plainly in the process. Same thing's true in ministry. I mentioned earlier the, the many opportunities we have to dilute down the truth in conversation. I know this is something that I struggle with a lot as I'm, I talk to friends in other areas, I'm constantly wondering, is this the hill to stand on? They just brought up something that I know is contrary to the Word of God. Should I make a declaration here about biblical truth in contrast to what they're professing? And, you know, there's wisdom and, and how things are communicated and all that, and there's love and how things are communicated. But, you know, many times I don't state the truth plainly because I'm trying to manage the outcome. And really, I'm trying to manage the outcome for me. I don't want to be in an uncomfortable situation, so I'm going to maybe dilute down the truth a little bit in the way that I respond. The thing that I was challenged with this week as I looked at this passage was that Paul says, I spoke the truth plainly among you. I wasn't diluting it down for your ears. I think that all of us need to be challenged that way. There are times and seasons and places where God has given you this ministry. He's placed you in a certain context. And an opportunity presents itself to state the truth plainly. Will we do it? Are we willing to state the truth plainly, as Paul was? Or do we want to cheat the situation to dilute it down just a bit? That's the second lesson that I want us to see. 
But the third lesson is this. The third lesson is to employ a winning strategy. Employ the winning strategy. Uh, We see this in verses 3 to 6. This is what it says. It says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts, to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. See, what Paul was describing there is the real situation that we face in ministry. You see, if if ministry was just about closing sales, then maybe we should employ some shady tactics in order to just get the responses that we want. But ministry is, that's not the key to ministry. The key to ministry is not how good an argument we can make or how nice we can love somebody or or, or how, how good of a hug we can provide at the point of need. Ministry is not just about those things. In order to really achieve the desired result that we, that we want, God has to act in a significant way. And we see that in, 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 this, in this passage. See, the problem with mankind, the problem with men and women who don't know Christ or who aren't believing in Him in areas of their life is that they actually become blind to the truth. It says in verse 3 that the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. This means that as, as someone who is not saved or as someone who is not believing in God in different areas, they look at the truth, they just can't see it. It's veiled in front of them. It doesn't make sense. And no matter how good of an argument you try to make, it's just going to be veiled in the meantime. Verse 4 says that this veiling of the gospel is something that the God of this age has done, blinding the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What's being described there, the God of this age is Satan. Jesus described Satan as the prince of the world in John 12 and John 16. Um, When Satan appeared before Jesus, in Matthew chapter 4, the temptation, he offers Jesus the whole world. It's this idea that, that, that Satan has some sort of a dominion right now among us. He is the God of this age. And as the God of this age, lowercase g, Satan has done a massive act of veiling or of obscuring the truth about Christ from the minds of those who are not believing in God. When they look at it, they just can't see it. You ever talk to somebody that has rejected Christ in an area of their life or, or even unto salvation? And no matter how you talk about it, no matter how you describe it, they just kind of give you a blank stare or they argue vigorously back in return. They just can't see it. Second Corinthians 4 says they can't see it because Satan has veiled them to it. It has been obscured. And the thing that has been obscured, it says, is the image of God in Christ. The thing that has been obscured is Christ itself. Unbelievers can see lots of things. They can see lots and and understand lots of things, but they can't understand the basic truth about Christ. That is what is obscured. That is what 
can't be seen. That's why somebody can go so far, but then they don't ever take that final step to trust in Christ. It's because it's Christ that has been obscured. We might be able to improve their perception of the church, or we might be able to improve their perception of us, but we certainly can't improve their perception of Christ. Because it's veiled and obscured. So if that's the case, if it's veiled and obscured, then what do we do? Well, he says in verse 5, that we preach not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. We We preach Jesus Christ literally as God, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Paul says, given the fact that Jesus is obscured by Satan in the minds and eyes of the unbelieving, given that's the fact, I'm going to lift Christ up. I'm going to preach Him, not ourselves. I'm going to rely on Him and not our own devices and not our own arguments. I'm going to lift Him up. Because verse 6 tells us, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made His light shine in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Here's the image that I believe Paul was, was working on there. Where do we see that phrase when God says, let light shine in the darkness. Where in the Bible is that phrase come from? It comes from the very beginning. It comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 1, in the first three verses. Genesis 1, 1 to 3 says this, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. The picture that we see in creation is of a formless void of an earth. And God is hovering over the surface of this this mass, and he says, in an instant, let there be light, and there was light. He didn't have to do anything more than just speak it, and it came into being. Out of this formless void that was dust and particles or whatever it might be that would cloud your perception of anything, God said, let's turn on the lights, boom, and lights came into being. And suddenly there was a clarity around the situation. Paul says that that's what happens when someone comes into a relationship with Christ. Just as God, at the beginning of time, spoke a word, and suddenly light came into creation, and all that we know came into being at the speaking of a word. So it is in ministry that when Jesus says, okay, I want them to get it, then they get it. When Jesus flips the switch, the lights come on. This was true for Paul as he walked along the Damascus Road, going to persecute Christians, And Jesus said, I'm going to turn on the lights for you, Paul, and now you're going to see the truth. And he flipped the switch, and suddenly Paul understood the truth about Christ. The same thing is true uh, in my life. The same thing is true in your life. At some point, God said, okay, I'm going to turn on the lights so you can see the truth now. And since that's the case, since it's the case that in order for someone to respond positively to the truth, it takes Jesus to turn on the lights, what should we do in response to that? 
And the thing that we should do in response to that is, is twofold. The first thing we should do is we should pray. We should pray. If, if positive results in ministry are a product of Jesus flipping on the lights, then in any ministry that we're a part of, we ought to begin and bathe it in prayer. Because if for someone to really grasp anything of what we're saying and for the desired result to really come, which is greater belief and faith in Christ, then it's going to require Jesus to turn on the lights in that individual's life. We should pray and ask God to work in advance. The second thing that we should do is that we should lift Christ up. Paul said, it's not us that we preach, but it's Jesus Christ. Our ministry should be bathed about Christ. We should be lifting him high. If we take Jesus out of ministry, then we've ceased to be engaged in anything that is ministry. Jesus must be at the center, the center of our motivations, the center of what's being offered. The hope of all people is Christ. John chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus says, If he is lifted up, then he will draw all men and women unto himself. The key to ministry is Christ. It's him working. So we should lift him up and see people be drawn to him. When you think about your ministry, whatever it is that is this ministry that God has given to you, Think about that role, that place, that service that you have. Think about how that might express itself this week. I want to challenge you with two things with it. The first thing is this. Pray before you go and do that task. And ask God to turn on the lights in others' life as a result. And the second thing, as you go into that ministry, as your motivation, be thinking, I want to lift Christ high in this. And as opportunity presents itself, to point conversations and point people back to him. He's the hope of all people. Let's uh, pray. Father, I thank you that you have given us this ministry. I thank you that you have placed us in this place at this time in Norman so that we might fish the waters around us for men. Father, I pray that you would help us to not get discouraged and quit. I pray that you would help us to not dilute the truth down and cheat. I pray that you would help us to employ the winning strategy of pointing others to you because it's only through you that any of the hope of the world might be offered. Father, our desire in ministry is that lives would be changed and that only happens in Christ. So Father, we pray that you would work in a big way as we lift you up, and as you draw men and women into yourself. Father, we thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.